If you've been with us uh, during our series in Christology, you know that we are currently in what is called uh, the Passion of Christ. And the Passion of Christ simply is this movement from the Garden of Gethsemane to uh, Golgotha's Hill, in which Christ will ultimately uh, be crucified and he will die on the behalf of his people. And last Lord's Day evening, um, if you were here, we looked at the Garden of Gethsemane at a slightly different angle. We considered the words when Jesus says, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. We saw that there is great sorrow and anguish in the soul of Christ. Um, in Luke's account, we read that he sweats drops of, of blood and that an angel has to come and comfort him. But when we considered the uh, garden scene, especially when Christ speaks of not doing his will, but God's will, we saw that there is a movement from conflict to resolve. That there's a conflict in Christ where he humanly doesn't want to undergo what's about to happen. I mean, who would want to undergo suffering? Nails and, 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 the, and the beatings that he is going to endure. No one would. So we saw that it's a right and natural response for Jesus not to want to uh, undergo the agony and the sufferings of the cross. Because no one wants to go through pain. But then he says, not, as my, uh, not my will, but yours be done. So we see that there's a resolve in Christ. So there's a movement from his desires to his resolve in his mind. Very different than how we operate as humans, right? So we, we see an object, we desire it, and what does our mind tell us? We shouldn't have that object. Our mind tells us, no, there's a, there's a struggle going on between our desires and our minds. And ultimately, what happens? We give in to our desires because we reason and say, I want this because I want it. Not because it's good. Not because any of those things. That's why a lot of people steal. That's why a lot of people cheat. That's why a lot of things happen in the world because their desires override their reason. But that's not the case with Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. His desires stay desires. And they really get washed away from his reason. Where he says, but not what I want, but as you want. And that's how we are to operate in this world. I, and I, I hope that from that lesson uh, you have operated in that way. Things that you want in this world, desires that you have, if they are not according to God's will and word, then we are to dead them at the tracks. Our reason is to override what we want and our desire, for our reason is to be lined up with God's will. We want to now look at the garden scene from another angle, and that is from a biblical theological angle. And what I mean by that is, in the garden scene, the Garden of Gethsemane, there are many parallels to another garden scene. What we see in Gethsemane is very similar to what we see in Eden. So what I want to do this evening is look at some of these parallels between Eden and Gethsemane. 
What we see in Eden, what we see in Gethsemane. So last week we looked at the garden scene uh, with a microscope, and we looked at the details. But now we want to look at it from 30,000 feet up in the air. How does this relate to the overall story of the Bible, as well as what happened in the fall of man? I want to do that in three points. Number one, the person. Number two, the location. And number three, the fall and victory. Number one, the person. Number two, the location. And number three, the fall and victory. And just to reiterate, we're going to be looking at how Eden is similar but also different than Gethsemane. Okay? As well as the people who are involved, which are um, two. Well, you want to count Eve, but we're just going to look at Christ and Adam. We read in Luke 22, verses 39 through 46 this. And when he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he drew and withdrew from them about a stone's throw, and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Let's consider first the person. The person. The Apostle Paul says in Romans 5:14, Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those sinning, was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. One of the main themes in the Bible is what is called Adam in Christ typology. Adam in Christ typology. And that's a very important word for us to understand. Adam in Christ typology. And when we consider that word typology, it's not something that we should uh, be in fear of and say, well, I don't know what that means. I never heard that before because I know that Pastor Antonio <laughs> spoke about it before and frequently. And I know that I have on some occasions, but... Typology is defined in three simple parts, okay? Number one, a type is a historical person, place, institution, or event that is designed by God to point forward to a future historical person, place, institution, event. Does that make sense? So an historical person, place, institution, event designed by God not randomly, that points forward to another historical person, event, institution. Secondly, types always point to something or someone greater than itself. Types always point to something or someone greater than itself. So we have an historical person pointing forward to another historical person, but the one that is pointing forward to it's much greater, it's much better than the type or the other historical person. And third, types are both like and unlike their antitypes. The antitype is the thing that the type is pointing forward to. There is a correspondence, but also an escalation. So there are things similar between the type and antitype, but what's different is an escalation from type to antitype. It's getting better. From type is the weaker, and the antitype the greater. 
So the type is the weak one. The antitype is the greater one, the stronger one. Okay? Very, very, very simple. Um, many people have tried to use analogies. I don't know of any good analogies. Pastor Antonio might. Uh, you might have think of one like... Um, uh, like a baseball player, uh, I heard of uh, who was the one? Jackie Robinson. Uh, I heard of uh, one guy say Jackie Robinson was the type, and um, um, uh, Hank Aaron was the anti-type. <laughs> he was he was the better uh, uh, colored player that was to come in. Um, so, however you want to think of this type-anti-type relationship, um, always note that. A type is an historical person that points forward to someone or something greater than itself. Okay? And what we see is this is the relationship between Adam and Jesus. Now, what's the relationship between Adam and Jesus? It's a type and anti-type relationship. It's Adam is the type who points forward to someone greater than himself, the anti-type. And that is so important. If there is any... If there was one rule in biblical hermeneutics and how we interpret the Bible, it is this one. That Adam points to Jesus Christ. And the majority of the Old Testament figures that we have in the Old Testament point to Jesus Christ. Abraham, Moses, Israel as a corporate Adam, as a corporate people, points forward to Jesus Christ. Okay? They're not just random individuals. But they point and they teach us something about the Messiah, who's the come. Adam's the type who points forward to the antitype, who is Jesus Christ. Now, there are much similarities and differences between Adam and Jesus. And one of those similarities and differences that we see between Adam and Christ first lies in their person and their offices that they carry. And what I mean by that is both Adam and Christ... They represent people, and they carry a threefold office. So Adam and Christ, they both represent others. That's a similarity. And they also carry a threefold office, another similarity. Okay? Adam is what is called a federal head. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15.22, For as in Adam, all die. Our confession in chapter 6, paragraph 3, calls our, um, our first parents, uh, Adam and Eve, the root of mankind. The root of mankind. So what we mean by federal headship is this. Adam represented others. He went on the behalf of others. Just as if you work for a large corporation, let's say Walmart, you represent Walmart you know the rules, you know the ins and outs of the corporation, and you speak on the behalf of the corporation. Well, Adam spoke on the behalf of us. His actions were on the behalf of us. And when he sinned, we all sinned in him. So what does that mean? That means that when a baby is born, is that baby guilty or innocent? Guilty. Why is the baby guilty? Because they are linked transcendentally to Adam. That's why no babies are innocent. Because their federal head is Adam. They are sinners by nature. So Adam represents all of mankind. When Adam fell in the garden, 
we all fell in the garden. Simple. Adam is a federal head. And we can say the same about Jesus Christ. Just as Adam represents others, Christ represents others as well. But there's a vast difference between who Jesus represents and who Adam represents. You see, Adam represented all of mankind. And when he sinned, we all sinned. Now, if you say that that, that's not fair, let me say that there's nothing in the garden that Adam did that you wouldn't have done. You would have sinned with Adam. You wouldn't encourage Adam. Eat it. Do what you got to do. Become like God. Obtain the knowledge of, of good and evil. And also, too, if you have problems with that, as R.C. Sproul would say, create your own world. You can do whatever you want with it. But there's a vast difference between who Christ and who Adam represents. Adam represented all of mankind, but who does Jesus Christ represent? Does Jesus represent everybody? I got three no's. Well, no. Christ doesn't represent everyone. Because if Jesus represented everyone, then what's one of the implications of that? Everyone would be in heaven. If Jesus represented every single one, then every single one would be in heaven. But that's not the case. And we know that's not the case because the Bible tells us that Jesus didn't die for the whole world. He doesn't represent every single person, but he represents a few, a specific people. So we see that both Adam and Christ are federal heads. They represent others. Now let's consider their offices. Adam in the garden held a threefold office. He was a prophet, he was a priest, and he was a king. He was a prophet, he was a priest, and he was a king. Let's consider Adam as a prophet. When most people think of the term prophet, they tend to think that a prophet is merely someone who predicts the future. But friends, when we consider the term prophet, the, that, that's not the essential function of a prophet. For a prophet is one, not merely who predicts the future, but one who speaks on the behalf of God. Prophets speak the words of God. They are God's mouthpieces. And this is the office that Adam carried in the garden. Genesis 2:19 says, So out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air and brought with them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was his name. What do we see here? Adam, as a prophet, spoke on the behalf of God. How? By naming the animals. He names the animals on the behalf of God. One theologian has said, it is the prerogative of the creator to name the creation. The artist to name the painting. The designer to um, name what he has designed. However, it is not Adam who created the animals, but God. However, the Lord grants Adam the privilege of naming them. To speak on God's behalf, granting to them the grace of prophethood. Adam didn't create the animals, but God gave him this office of prophethood in which he would name the animals. But along with naming the animals, we see that Adam was to teach others God's word and God's law. He was to teach his progeny who God is and how one is to worship God. 
And friends, that is us as parents. That is our commission as well, to teach our young ones who God is and how we are to approach God. But along with Adam being a prophet, we see Adam held the office of priest. Genesis 2.15, Then the Lord God took the man and put him in put him into the garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. And those last words, to cultivate and to keep it, are the clues that the Bible gives us that speaks of Adam's priesthood. G.K. Pill explains, Genesis 2.15 says, God placed Adam in the garden to cultivate, which could be translated to work, and to keep it. The two Hebrew words for cultivate and keep are usually translated serve and guard elsewhere in the Old Testament. When these two words occur together in the Old Testament, so when we see cultivate and keep together in the Old Testament, they refer either to Israelites serving God and guarding God's word or to the priests who keep in service or charge the tabernacle uh, in the tabernacle. In other words, the writer of Genesis 2 was portraying Adam against the later portrait of Israel's priests, and that he was to be the um, archetype of all the priests who will serve and guard God's temple. In a nutshell, Adam was to serve and guard the Garden of Eden in the same way the Israelite priests were to serve and guard God's tabernacle. Simple. The same function that the Israelite priests had in the tabernacle is the same function that Adam had in the garden. For we call the Garden of Eden God's first temple. Talk to Pastor Antonio about that. (laughs) And lastly, along with Adam being a prophet and priest, the Bible portrays him as a king. Genesis 1.26, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after after our likeness, and let him have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over the cattle, and over the, all the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. In the garden, God gave Adam dominion. He gave him a kingship. He was to rule all the land and all the creatures in the land. Therefore, he is a king. This threefold office that Adam carried in the garden, uh, this is the threefold office that Adam carried in the garden, but Stick with me now, because this is important. But when Adam sinned, the threefold office that he carried, prophet, priest, and king, plunged us down a threefold fallen state. The threefold office that he carried plunged us down a threefold fallen and sinful state. What I mean by that is this. Adam, as a prophet, was to speak on the behalf of God. He was to be God's mouthpiece. But when he sinned, what happened to us? We became ignorant of God's word. The prophet who was to teach us God's word, now we are ignorant of God's word. We have lost that supernatural theology and what God wants of us. We suppress God's knowledge, the knowledge that we have of him with sin. In unrighteousness. God, Adam failed in being a prophet. Adam as a priest was to guard the garden. He was not, allow, uh, not to allow anything sinful into the garden. 
as soon as he saw a, a creature that, that, that was, wasn't uh, created by God, anything sinful, he was to kill it instantly. But when he sinned, what happened? He allowed sin to enter into our hearts. He failed to guard our hearts. And Adam, as a king, was to rule God's people. But when he sinned, he allowed sin to rule over us. You see that? As Adam, as prophet, priest, and king, in his failing to uphold those offices, plunged us down a threefold state. We're ignorant of God's word because he failed to be a prophet. We are guilty before God because he failed to be a priest. And sin rules over us because he failed to be a king. Saints, this is why Jesus needed to be our prophet, priest, and king. This is why when I hear people say, I love Jesus so much, and all they know is Jesus died on the cross. But they don't know that Jesus is our mediator. He is our prophet, priest, and king. Because Jesus, being our prophet, priest, and king, corresponds to the threefold state in which we fell. He undoes what Adam plunged us down into in order to undo the triple curse of sin that Adam brought upon us. Jesus had to hold on to the threefold office of prophet, priest, and king. Herman Bovink explains. He had to be a prophet to know and disclose the truth of God, a priest to devote himself to God and end in our place, to offer himself up to God, a king to govern and protect us according to God's will. Christ as a prophet does what? Those who are ignorant of God's word, he teaches us God's word. He's a priest because we are guilty before God. But what does he do? He offers himself. As a sacrifice to reconcile us to the Father. And as a king, we are ruled by sin. But what does he do? He conquers our enemies. He conquers sin. And friends, what I hope you see from this point is simply this, that Jesus, as the last and better Adam, he undoes all that Adam brought upon us. He's a better representative of God's people because he represents us rightly. He's a better prophet. He's a better priest. He's a better king. And knowing who Christ is as the better Adam sets us up for this vivid scene we see in the Garden of Gethsemane. Let's consider the second point, which is the setting. As we have learned, Adam is a federal head as well as a prophet, priest, and king. And we read in Scripture that Adam was placed in a garden. Now, this garden was so unlike anything in the world. For Eden was the first of its kind. I like to think of, and don't judge me for this, but I watch a lot of stuff on North Korea. And if it's so, I know, it's weird, but if you look at a map at night, you'll see that the only place on the globe that's not lit up is North Korea. It's completely dark. There, there are no lights or North Korea, but, you know, across the border, South Korea is lit up. Well, you we want to think of that in, in, in when we consider the Garden of Eden. If we were to look at the world before or when it was created, apart from anything else, Eden would look so different than anything in the world. 
One to think that God created Eden and there was a garden here and a garden here and a garden here. But there was only one garden. And that one garden was to expand to the ends of the earth. There was no place on earth like Eden. It was full of trees for Adam to eat from, all but one. Animals were free to roam in peace amongst one another. Imagine that. A lion grazing along with a zebra. In Eden, that's what it was. There was a beautiful river that turned into four separate rivers, something that rivers never do. Eden, although it wasn't perfected, was beautiful. Quick note that Eden itself, creation, not just man, but Eden itself, it had an eschatology. You see, Eden, Eden was in the transition of moving somewhere. It was going to get better. So we want to think that Eden was perfect because Eden was to expand further. This, saints, is the world that Adam was created in. This beautiful garden was the home of Adam. But now let's consider Christ and his garden. John 18 says, When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron. And there was a garden. The garden of Gethsemane was the total opposite of the garden of Eden. Eden was the blueprint of how the rest of the world was to be. But Gethsemane was the reality of what the world has become. Eden was to be a miniature of how the rest of the world was to look like. But what we have in Gethsemane is the reality of what the world has become post-fall. Gethsemane was a testimony of how far Adam's fall reached. You see, friends, when Adam sinned in the garden, our nature is not the only thing that he ruined, but he ruined creation itself. Thorns and thistles have scarred creation that God once called good. Plants were never meant to die. Animals were never meant to hunt one another. And Christ in the Gethsemane is a reminder of Paul's words in Romans 8.22, for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. In Gethsemane, there was no rivers. There was no fruitful trees. There was no animals. There was no helpmate. All there was in Gethsemane was blood, sorrow, fear, anguish, betrayal, loneliness, the ground that, that God cursed in Genesis 3.17 was the same ground that Christ stepped onto in Gethsemane. Remember, God curses the serpent, but he also curses the ground. And that very ground is the ground that Christ entered in Gethsemane. If there ever was a time when man was the fall, it was in Gethsemane. And this leads to our last point, which is the fall and the victory. So far we have learned that there are two men who both represent others and carry the office of prophets, priests, and king. Both men enter into a garden. Adam is created in Eden, a beautiful garden full of God's glory and blessing. And Jesus enters Gethsemane, 
the sin-cursed garden that Eden was never intended to become. The total opposite of what Eden was. Two men, two gardens, two different actions and outcomes. In Eden, God's special presence wasn't, presence wasn't enough. Intimate fellowship with God wasn't enough, for Adam wanted to be like God. Now, it's not a sin to want to be like God, but Adam's error was he was trying to obtain God's reward by going his own way. He was going to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but he wanted to do it his own way. Not on God's way, not, his, not on God's timetable. He made his own road. And as a result, Adam sinned against God. And he sinned on so many levels, did he not? As a representative, does he represent us properly? No. He sins against God. As a prophet, he was to teach Eve God's word as soon as the serpent opened his mouth. Adam was too dead. Anything that the serpent said and combat him with God's word. He failed to be a prophet. He failed to be a priest. How? He allowed a serpent to enter God's holy place. The moment he saw that serpent, he should have killed it. And as a king, he failed us as well. He was too rule over creation and creatures. But what happens in the garden? The serpent rules over him. He, the serpent, he allows the serpent's reason to override and override his reason. Adam failed to be a prophet, priest, and king. He failed to be our representative. And as a result of Adam's sin, what does he do? He hides from God. The one who he's had the most intimate fellowship with he now knows that he's naked and he's ashamed and he hides from god in fear of the punishment that god will bring about uh, upon him adam horribly fell in the garden but what will christ do in his garden adam shouldn't have failed in the garden he had everything going for him there even a couple of weeks ago, we talked about this original righteousness that he was created in. He had natural theology. He knew that God exists. He had supernatural theology. He knew that God was triune. He shouldn't have failed. But what will Christ do in his garden? As Christ enters Gethsemane, he knows what he must do. But the struggle is he doesn't want to undergo the pain and suffering that awaits him. He knows that he has to die, but, but just like us, he doesn't want to die in the way that he was going to die. He knows that he's sinless. He knows that he's done nothing wrong, but he also knows that he's the only one who can carry the weight of sin upon his back. Imagine that. You don't want to go through something, but you know that you're the only one that could do it. There's no other option. In Gethsemane, there was no serpents to tempt him. 
We don't read of any creature coming along Christ and tempting him. For the battle and struggle came within him. In Gethsemane, there was no tree that delighted his eyes. Rather, there was a cup that brought him agony. And what we see in the midst of suffering and sorrow, there's great resolve and there's great triumph. What does he say? Father, if you are willing, remove this cup. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Friends, by this saying alone, by Christ saying this, he's already showing how much better he is than Adam. Just by that phrase alone, he already wins the battle of who's better, him or Adam. Why is that? Because remember in the Garden of Eden, Adam's desires overrode his reason. But what happens in the Garden of Gethsemane? Christ's reason overrode his desires. Remember, the prophets were to speak the word of God. But what does Christ say? Not my will, but yours be done. Not what I want, but what does your word say? I must suffer. I must die. The priests were to guard the tabernacle from sinful creatures. But when, but when Christ says, not my will, but yours be done, what is he doing there? He's guarding his mind. He's guarding his reason. He doesn't allow his desires to override his reason. Because what if his desires overrode his reason? He would sin against God. And the kings were to rule God's people. Christ doesn't allow his emotions and desire to rule him. I'm feeling this way, but I'm not going to let that overcome what I was created to do. No one has made, this, made the comparisons and contrasts better than A.W. Pink on his commentary on John 18. Listen to these wonderful insights. Here he's going to compare Christ in the Garden of Eden, now Garden of Gethsemane, and Adam in the Garden of Eden. The entrance of Christ in, into the Garden at once reminds us of Eden. The contrast between them are, intent, are indeed most striking. In Eden, all was delightful. In Gethsemane, all was terrible. In Eden, Adam and Eve parlayed with Satan. In Gethsemane, the last Adam sought the face of his father. In Eden, Adam sinned. In Gethsemane, the Savior suffered. In Eden, Adam fell. In Gethsemane, the Redeemer conquered. The conflict in Eden took place by day. The conflict in Gethsemane waged by night. In Eden, the race was lost. In Gethsemane, Christ announced, Of them which you have given me, I have not lost one. In Eden, Adam took the fruit from Eve's hand. In Gethsemane, Christ received the cup from his father's hand. In Eden, Adam hid himself. In Gethsemane, Christ boldly showed himself. In Eden, God sought Adam. In Gethsemane, the last Adam sought God. I couldn't do it better than that. There is great triumph in the Garden of Gethsemane. And saints, what I hope you see from this lesson is the greatness of Jesus Christ. He is altogether lovely, is he not? When we read of this seed in Gethsemane, we have a tendency to just focus on the sorrow. When we focus on the blood that drips from his head, 
We focus on the agony. We focus on the struggle. And in doing so, we can miss the glorious news that Gethsemane preaches to us. And that glorious news is Jesus Christ will be victorious. In Gethsemane, he is overcoming the flesh, the world, and the devil. Christ didn't come to earn our salvation. He didn't come merely to be a martyr. But he came to fix all that Adam ruined. And Gethsemane is a perfect story and vivid picture of that. Just as a woman who suffers to bring about her child during labor, a woman who's giving labor almost feels like she can die as the baby is coming out. Well, in Gethsemane, we see the same scene. That Jesus suffering and going through pain and agony in order to bring about our salvation. In Christ's agony, he's triumphing over all of our enemies. Saints, when we read of Christ in Gethsemane, yes, he's the suffering servant. But we also see a glorious conqueror. I hope you don't miss that. And next time you read this Garden of Gethsemane scene, yes, focus on his true humanity, but also focus on his true divinity. He conquers for us in his most dire and sorrowful state. He's doing for us what we could never do for ourselves. Gethsemane is a scene of victory, not merely one of sorrow. And what's the result of Christ's victory, saints? In John 20, when Mary sees the risen and glorified Christ, who does she think he is? She thinks that he's the gardener. And what we have there, and nothing in the Bible is random, what we have there is the creator and creation walking once again in harmony with one another. Because Christ has inaugurated a new creation. And how does it start? It first starts with us, with humans. And then, what I will hold, the world will be remade. What we see is Christ doesn't just take us back to the Garden of Eden. But he wins for us a paradise that can never be lost. He wins for us that great vision that John has in Revelation. And friends, what I want you to note in closing is Christ went through this agony to bring about your salvation. And what I mean by that is your salvation meant the world to Jesus Christ in which he would get on his knees and struggle and debate on whether he wants to really do this. And how much do we take light of our salvation in Christ? It brought our Savior to his knees, to sweat drops of blood, for our salvation. And how frequently do, not, do we not take serious our salvation? If it meant much to Christ, how much more should it mean to us? That's another implication of Gethsemane. 
And friends, I hope you don't miss that because it was of much pain for Christ to bring about our salvation, we should be the most joyous people on this earth. We should not get tired of something like this when we read of our Christ. And we didn't even get to the part where the angels had to come and comfort him. That's the great length that Christ went to. We, also, we often think of he was, he was badly bruised, he, he suffered on the cross, but just think about him mentally. And the struggle that went with inside of him. No man, past, present, or future, could have done what Christ did. And I don't mean that merely by dying, but I mean in the Garden of Gethsemane. Everyone would have shrunk back, and everyone would have left Jerusalem. But what does Christ do? He, he sets his face like a flint. And he does what the Father commanded him to do. Not my will, but yours be done. And what Christ saw in that is he knew that after the thorns there will be a crown. And after the cross there will be a throne. And after all the people who had said all these things about him that blasphemed his name, he knew that there was going to be a greater people who will worship him for who he is the lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world. In Gethsemane, we see sorrow, but we see victory. And friends, your victory is in Jesus Christ. Let's pray.